Hello and welcome to Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest on this week's programme is Elizabeth Speller, whose first novel, The Return of Captain John Emmett, was published earlier this month. The books had some terrific reviews. The Times said, Speller's writing is gorgeous, her research immaculate and very lightly worn, sheer bliss. And The Independent declared, that the book was set to become the new bird song, only better. Though this is Elizabeth's first work of fiction, it's not her first book by any means. She's already won considerable acclaim as a poet. Her poem Finisterre was shortlisted for the Forward Poetry Prize last year, for example. And as a memoirist, Sunlight on the Garden was compared to Sylvia Plath by the TLS for its ability to combine beauty with irony and suffering with comedy. Elizabeth's novel takes place in the aftermath of the Great War, and shows how individuals and society came to terms with that cataclysmic event. In particular, Lawrence Bartram, a young man whose own life has been left directionless by tragedy. He's leading a solitary existence until the sister of a school friend, the eponymous John Emmett, contacts him to ask him to help shed light on her brother's death. Traumatised by war, did Emmett simply commit suicide, or is there more to it than that? Are there in fact secrets? waiting to be uncovered. When I met Elizabeth, I began by asking her about making the transition from non-fiction to fiction. Um, actually, in my case, that wasn't that wasn't particularly difficult because the lure of the novel was always there. So in all my alleged non-fiction, quite a lot of it incorporated fiction, either explicitly or, or just um, in passing. So the jump wasn't huge. And when I wrote history, I wrote bits that were fictional, interspersed with, with real history. When I wrote about travel, I included a lot of extracts from poetry and novels written by other people. So I've always blurred those boundaries, I think. And was it coming across a, a real-life case from the First World War, which was the initial inspiration for this story? I think there were two things. I did come across a real-life case in the First World War that, that sort of moved me and made me think differently about the war. But I also um, had done a lot of research on the war for my previous book, Sunlight in the Garden. And I had sort of surplus research and things I was well, really longing to look at, but I didn't think would fit non-fiction um, and were perfect for novel. So I took the research to the novel. So tell me about this period. We're in the, the immediate aftermath of the First World War. What, what, what are the sort of currents that are in the air that, that you wanted to bring out in the novel? I, I really chose it partly because I, it's an era, an era of sort of huge transition. So you, you go into the war in the Edwardian age and you come out in what we would recognise the modern age and you come out with a hugely damaged society. Sort of people often say that one, a lot of my deals with officers, one officer in every four or five is dead, but 50% of the remaining officers are injured, disabled or, or have what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder, have shell shock. And the people at home, of course, have also lost people. Virtually every family in Britain has been affected by the war. So you have these people who are adapting when they are least able to adapt and might want to actually go back to what they knew, but they can't, but it doesn't exist. And that that really interested me. But you've got the Russian Revolution, of course. So they're nervous about what's going on in Russia. They're nervous about the workers. The workers are restless because there aren't enough jobs. I think it's politically interesting. Women are asserting their rights and obviously being independent during the war. And not all of them are particularly happy to see the soldiers return to sort of old-fashioned marriages. There's cinema, there's music, 
things strangely there's a lot of innovation things that were threads before the war are, are continually more strongly not not less and i think it's just interesting to see how people chose different ways out of it and how some people failed completely and some people profited enormously post-war mm. um so i think it's it, it, it's about surviving really or failing to survive and that that interested me very much yeah, you mentioned the sort of the physical damage and the psychological damage of those who came back from the war, and you also mentioned at one point criminality of people who'd come back from the war and had nothing to do, and the only thing they could do was turn to crime. And yet, at the same time, official commemoration of the war is really beginning, and you've got poppies, and you've got the cenotaph, and you've got memorials put up. So it's it's curious ambivalencies about the war. I was quite surprised when I started looking at it that this was the time which the unknown soldier was brought back. It was when the cenotaph was first dedicated. It was the first year we had poppies being sold in remembrance. But what really surprised me was that quite a lot of people threw parties with a sort of slight return to commemorating the dead on, on Remembrance Sunday. That's entirely sort of in a in, in, in a, almost a religious sense, but certainly in a very solemn ceremony. But actually people get parties, people went to the races. They also celebrated. People chose which way. Um, they celebrated the victory and they celebrated leaving war. Um, and that's gone completely now. So and I think that's interesting. It was a different mindset. And that's another thing that interested me very much. Your main character, Lawrence Bartram, at, at one point in the book, says that he's not sure if he's more disorientated by all that's altered or how much had not. And I thought that was a very interesting remark about this this, this point in history. I think a lot of that's to do with the class structure and the fact that for many people going back to what you knew felt safer than embracing anything that had any more change. So I suppose Lawrence, he's also looking at the visual landscape of Britain. So when he goes back, you fought a war, you fought a war that people can hear the guns in London and you can get to in a day and mothers could go out to the bedsides of dying sons. But you go back to London and there's no damage at all. People are living a normal life. And I think that must have been quite interesting. I actually chose a landscape in London which is a perceptive, may notice quite a lot of which will be taken out in the Blitz. So some of Lawrence's reflections on, on the continuity, we know if we're being a bit sort of distant from the novel, actually will not exist given another war. So um, I thought, and I'm quite interested in looking at those buildings and how they fitted in. So there's a psychological change or not change, but there's also a visual continuity. I suppose I wondered to what extent as you were writing this book, you were sort of thinking about present day wars, which share some characteristics in terms of being known about, of having an impact, and yet at the same time being strangely distant. It's interesting, in many ways, we're closer to modern day war because of less control over the media and what gets reported back home. And because the internet sort of um, soldiers can write, uh, I mean, some of them aren't supposed to, but nevertheless, things, things are sort of are disseminated. In the First World War, people knew accurately very little sons and husbands protected their families a bit the papers were controlled in what they said and this is one of the things I think I, I talk about is a sort of disorientation between what people read in the papers and what, what men were experiencing and they would be experiencing something terrible and then not see it really reflected in, in the newspapers of course you have to think of the difference in casualties that nearly 60,000 casualties by lunchtime on the first day of the Somme and I think when I looked about two weeks ago it's about I think it's still under 300 dead in the Middle East so you know, there are those huge, huge differences. There were three quarters of a million visibly disabled men in in England. So everyone could see the effects of the war. Whereas I don't know if I've ever seen a, an injured soldier. I would probably assume it was a car accident if I did. But the impact in, in what actually happened, of course, people stayed married. Domestic violence was a very private thing um, in 1920, say. Um, so unless somebody did something 
terrible to their wife. These miseries were going on out of sight. Now there's a considerably more help and the recognition of shell shock, which post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, which only slowly and grudgingly came in at the end of the First World War and really came in for officers long before it came in for men who had higher, were seen to have higher sensibility. And I think this whole business of officers quite often avoiding serious being convicted for serious military offences by being said to be ma- mad that was that happened quicker for them than it did for soldiers tell me about Lawrence Bartram your hero what kind of man is he I think he has become a very introspective man perhaps in a way he's a bit like um, in Brideshead Revisited where you have Charles Ryder he's a sort of narrator on the life it's, it, and he certainly feels and he's he certainly tells you what he's thinking and feeling but he's quite buttoned down and in this book and in the subsequent book he slowly opens up and he's sort of symbolic of a whole lot of people trying to live again but he's a wary man and a man who's had quite a lot of misfortune and sort of emotional severance in his life and I think he's represented of one sort of man in in the war um, which is a man who is going to be very cautious and is repressing is surviving by repressing a great deal of what's happened to him which I actually model slightly on my own grandfather who was a don at Cambridge and got the military cross and it came out as a young man but had been a pacifist and never spoke of it again and just couldn't talk about it or have any discussion about the war and that's a standard almost a cliche a standard story and I suppose he's he's that sort of man but he does learn a, a bit to talk about it so one hopes he will be saved he's sort of cast adrift in the post-war world he's got a project but he's not really engaging with it and then a letter arrives which sets in motion the, the whole book he's not badly damaged but he's really, he's sort of in stasis. He just isn't moving on at all. Um, he's in a small flat. He's, he's not really writing his book. He's got just about enough money not to do anything. He doesn't see his friends. Some are dead and some still have families. He's, he's caught between all sorts of different societies and he feels on the outside. And then they get this, this letter from a young woman that he had vaguely had sort of romantic fantasies about um, long before the war. And she tells him that somebody who'd been a close friend but that he hadn't seen for many years has come back um, from the war relatively sound in health but actually has had some kind of breakdown been put into uh, a nursing home for shell-shocked officers and just when he seemed to be getting better and they had hope that he'd come back into full recovery he's, he kills himself and she asks him to intervene and try and find out a truth she feels she's not been given. And that's what brings us to this real-life historical case, which which we mentioned at the beginning. Yes, that's where really it, it, it sort of, I mean, there are various strands in the book, obviously, but it goes back to the execution of a young officer in the middle of the war, one of only three officers. In fact, the, the story I took to base it on was of one of three officers who were executed, set against over 300 soldiers who were executed for um, cowardice or desertion. His friend is involved in the case I won't say more because it will give it away, but he is involved in a case which is very similar to one of those cases. Is your bigger preoccupation or your your attraction to exploring this case to see what war and violence do to men and how how societies try to to cope with that? I mean, it certainly was. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think it's amazing that, I mean, I know we went into depression and eventually into another war but it is astonishing that you can inflict that kind of blow on a society and it can actually come back and actually develop and move forward there is a huge sort of psychic wound i find it very interesting that um, even today students are fascinated by the first world war and for me it's my grandfather for them it's 
unbelievably long ago, and yet there's still this sort of emotional and intellectual interest. Mostly, I think young men in particular often say they can't imagine, they just can't imagine what would happen if they were caught on to do that sort of kind of duty. And I think it was also quite interesting to me that every man, any man over 65 now, would still have been available for national service. And we're the sort of first generation to grow up not thinking that our state will call on us. So a man doesn't have, that's not part of his culture, that he will can be called upon to be a soldier. And that's quite a, quite a shift, I think. I wanted to ask you about the research for the book, not so much the sort of pragmatic things like did trains run on Christmas Day on, on branch lines, which obviously was, is an important part of it, but the sort of moral climate, the sort of relationship in particular between men and women. How did you capture a sense of how different or how similar that was? Quite a lot of it was re- reading sort of letters and diaries. Some of it was was taken from existing novels or, or, or bits of literature that was, were written at that time. So actually it was the assumptions more than the calculated informing you about what's going on. I did check, did reasonably nice young women have sex without being married? And the answer was yes, there was a huge shift around then from almost all women not doing to a reasonable number having had some sexual experience. But then there were sorts of things like, you know, what did you do about contraception in 1920? You, did you even take all your clothes off if it was a bit illicit? And, and it was really quite sort of simple things that, that suddenly become a problem to you. How does, it, <laughs> how does the underwear work? <laughs> and these things you sort of get a hint of in letters, which, is, which has been quite fun, actually. I like that sort of research best. You know, everyone knows what happened officially in politics in 1921. But how, what were people actually thinking? Um, in 1921 is more interesting. Although I would say, of course, there, were, there was a huge surplus of women. So things were changing fast in how women behaved. And at one point, Mary says to to Lawrence, she expresses frustration at the fact that, that women are being treated like children because they're not being told. Men, yeah. men are keeping these things within themselves and they're not divulging the kind of terrible experiences they had on the front. I think, I do think it was in that sense, and and you sort of feel it in one's own grandparents. I think there was often a huge gulf, but I think there probably was already, certainly in middle-class families, but how you expressed emotion or anxiety. You know, that, that in Edwardian times wasn't the norm. And probably in my novel, for the sake of a novel, people probably do talk to each other more than actually was the case in most married couples of that sort of era. It's the same, sort of the other side of the domestic violence. There are things that are not spoken of. You know, we are we are so open and so we try to be emotionally articulate. I, I think the man of 1921 would find himself very much astray now, mm. having to talk. I don't think people thought feelings were relevant to anything. But whether people who had shell shock and had been treated had a sort of um, access to more complicated emotions. It's quite hard to tell. And most of the First World War, we know more about the First World War from poetry. That's what's extraordinary. Most people know more about it from poetry than they do from any history book. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because John Emmett is himself a poet. I mean, that, that's mm. an important part of his yes. psychological makeup. I had um, taught a bit of war poetry and I say I've been interested to see how emotionally people responded to, to it. But I also had read a very uh, an interesting, uh, there was an anthology of, I think it's the Oxford Anthology of Modern British Poetry, which came out in the early 30s, and it excluded all the war poets except for Rupert Brooke, If I Should Die, and um, Julian Grenfell's very patriotic, jingoistic poem from the beginning of the war. And the poet laureate Bridges said in his introduction that those weren't poems, they were just expressions of grief and 
misery and that's not what poetry was they were actually i suppose he's saying their testimonies rather like prima levy in the holocaust these are testimonies of horror not poetry at all mm. and i thought that was just an interesting point that people were writing not in any way that we now think of as what poetry is for and so that's why i took poets although it raises a problem if you have fictional poets do you show any of their fictional poetry that's a, that's a big problem in writing yeah. I suppose there are sort of two impulses in the novel. One sort of typified by the Times, which wants to to ratify the official version of the war and have it all done and dusted and 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 put behind. And you know, everything was done for the right reasons and in the right way. And counter to that impulse, I suppose, is the whole direction of of Lawrence's investigation, which is about uncovering and opening up things mm-hmm. which which have been suppressed. I think that, yes, I think they were keen to put things away. And of course, the public didn't have ideas about disclosure. You were told what you what was good for you to know. And so actually many of the processes he uses to find are by the old ones of social network, what we would now call social networking. Um, who knows who? And I even sort of slightly make a joke of that. You know, who's related to who and who was in who, what regiment. So he's learning it by good old gossip rather than getting information or facts, which were just not available. Uh, they, they had put out a handbook of which officers were killed. There'd just been a list of that. Um, and they had got committees um, which were examining shell shock and they were examining executions. But uh, you know, their proceedings were in secret at the time. I mean, I could use them, but at the time they weren't known. Um, they were known to be going on. Although there was quite quickly a movement of people feeling disquiet about some of the military executions. Tell me about Charles Carfax, because he's a nice foil to, to Lawrence Bartram. Well, he's an example of somebody who was a, a, um, an Edwardian who was probably made for for war, um, made to, well, made for the officer class. Um, he's not complicated. He's healthy. He's strong. He's he's steady, not very, not very deep. But as part of the book, you begin to realise that that too is a bit of a cover and that he's a lot more intelligent than he'll let on. But he's that sort of bluff, affable man and he has a club and he doesn't appear to have any women or men or anybody in his life um, except sort of vague chums that he goes to see he's got a private income so he starts off as a sort of stereotypical sort of little Peter Whimsy type but then slowly as you go on you realise that that's just another variant on how you cope and the way he's coping is he's going back to precisely what he left as far as he can make it happen he, he wants to be a man of 1910 uh, a sort of privileged young man and I suppose that's part of the book that he 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 also makes small journeys himself um, and actually in the end is responsible for actually saving a potentially dangerous situation. If I remember correctly, it's Charles who points out that Agatha Christie and her novels are not like real life. They're, they're too neat, they're too pat, they provide neat solutions. And I thought that was an interesting kind of novelist's reflection on the enterprise that you're engaged in and feeling that plot, plot, cannot be the sole thing, that there are other responsibilities the novelist has. Well, yeah, I suppose Agatha Christie, it's a sort of puzzle. You have, you know, she's giving you a lot of characters and she's testing you to see whether you can, as a reader, can actually work out the, the, the revelation of the murderer at the end. And the murderer is clearly bad. I think more or less in Christie, they're never sort of good people where things have gone wrong or weak people or people who've had a moment of madness. They are on the whole doing things for the wrong motives, greed or money or jealousy or advantage. I was very much trying to show in mind that people do terrible, violent things, but particularly in this particular period of instability, they may be no better or worse than anybody else. This is their particular reaction. And the other thing is Mrs Christie never quite, I call her Mrs Christie because that's what they called her then, um, 
you never actually see people taken and hanged, which is what's going to happen to every single one of her murderers. And so you'd get a sort of tidy thing where, where justice is seen to be done. Um, the fates have sort of got it right. Uh, and and you know, that's a very clean version of what actually was going on. Tell me about the language of the novel. How, how easy was it for you to find a language that, that worked for the period and yet wasn't sort of encrusted with, with signals of its, of its own sort of his, historicity? I think that's, you know, I, I really think afterwards that's, that's a huge key thing and I notice it now in all historical books. Yeah, I mean, I say historically, books set in the 50s even because it's often, you can be correct and you could actually check every word just by going online now but sometimes it won't sound correct. Sometimes the right word that was actually in use sounds so odd or it jumps right off the page that by using a word that isn't strictly correct, it's, you know, there's a sort of public perception of how people were in 1920. So occasionally I found myself using a word. I, for instance, at one point I wanted to check, did they say loony or balmy or what did you say for people? And it, it was just, it was, it was quite interesting to find they said lunatic, but on the whole they said, said people were balmy. And I thought balmy was going to be a second world war thing, but it wasn't at all. And my my copy editor came back and was sort of raised an eyebrow about bugger between two officers. So I went back quickly and checked. But actually, it went back to about 1348, and particularly between between soldiers. So, and, and one of my first readers um, said she really loved it, but she did wonder about Mary saying at one point she was a puntee and that that was a terribly modern usage. And I was sure she was right. And I thought, she's absolutely, that's that. Um, so I defensively went online and found that that goes back to the 19th century, just like Bargy, and people did do it. Possibly not quite in the way we use it now, but it was, by the skin of my teeth, legitimate. But I think that's really interesting. It's also how people talk, you know, how politely they talk, and um, how, how, the, how long their sentences are, and how jolly they are some of the time. And finally, as you've hinted already, we haven't heard the last of Lawrence Bartram. Oh, Lawrence Bar- Bartram, yes. Lawrence Bartram... Um, I warmed up and um, um, and um, a man who's come to terms with quite a lot of the past goes on and will reappear in, in 1924 in a book I'm currently writing which will come out next year and by 1924 you have a new socialist government the first socialist government it only lasts nine months and it's brought down by a dastardly plot in reality and so there's a great deal of change Mussolini is beginning to take hold firmly in Rome Hitler is starting to come into the news and so I suppose that's another thing I'm interested in actually in both books is that the 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 Second World War is out there. Of course, that's retrospection, but, but by 1924, the Second World War is clearly the seeds of it are, are sown. And that quite interested me as well. These people, just as they find their feet, the more intelligent of the one them begin to see that the things might not be might not have been the war to end all wars. And that's quite a good point to write about. I was talking to Elizabeth Speller about her novel, the Return of Captain John Emmett, which is out now in hardback. It's highly recommended. That's all for this edition of Podularity, but I hope you'll join me in early April for the next programme. Until then, thank you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>